think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 74 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 75th episode. I'm Laurent Carboneau. I'm Ethan Rainbow. And I'm kind of amazed we've made it 75 episodes, to yeah. be honest. Who would have thought? So I, I certainly would not have. 75 episodes in substantially more than 75 weeks. Yeah. You know, that's okay. You remember when we were a weekly podcast? I don't. Uh, was <laughs> it like the first little bit there? First little bit. You know what? We were, we were in school, a lot less busy, less going on. Life happens. It was easier to just, you know, like, oh, why don't we just knock out a podcast this afternoon? That would that was much easier then in those in those salad days. Ah, uh, the, the simple times. Indeed. Um. So speaking of salad days, we want to talk about Salisbury. Uh, that is the Salisbury Doctrine. <laughs> the, the steak, actually. Indeed. Um, principle doctrine. What do we What do we call it? Really? I think it's actually doctrine. I believe so. Um, I had doctrine in my head. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yes. So uh, another thing named after an old British dead guy. Um, if you love if you love Shawcross, you're gonna love this. <laughs> um, so Salisbury Principle is named after Lord Salisbury, the inventor of Salisbury steak, uh, who said <laughs> that's true. It's not true. Okay, yeah. Uh, who said that if uh, the Senate or for them the House of Lords and their their British system um, is just not allowed to not pass things that were already passed by the House of Commons, critically. If it were a manifesto commitment by the governing party. Yes. Um, so not, not only pass, not only not pass, but, you know, not kill it. Um, there's leeway in there. Or leeway has developed um, where they're allowed to uh, amend it minorly. But the reason yeah. the reason we bring this up, which I think is where, to, to an extent, we no, should No, I think start. we should just really talk about the abstract principle. <laughs> and then we're done. <laughs> Um, the, the reason it comes up is because it's become somewhat salient again. Oh, I mean, I mean, in, it hasn't really existed substantively, um, in Canadian Senate procedure. Yes. Um, because the Senate has been a multi-partisan body. Uh, I mean, mainly, uh, I mean, so a, a duopoly. Yes. Um, between the Conservatives and the Liberals, and thus the Salisbury Convention was never particularly salient. Um, but it's become more salient as Peter Harder, the... <laughs> Peter II, Peter Harder. <laughs> I was waiting for you to say that. Um, the government uh, leader in the Senate. Representative. Uh, close enough. Um, has been pushing it. I mean, there's an IRPP uh, policy options piece about it, and he, he's done a lot of writing to push the Salisbury because it's sort of what's convenient for the government. Um, because it's a government's way of sort of uh, defending their own legislation against their own creation yes um which is the isg the independent it's actually justin trudeau's monster you could say (laughs) so i mean you're you're struck with this awkward tension of this creation of independent senators sober second thought with a little asterisk where it says but the salisbury doctrine is now is now a thing and they should not flex their independent minds too too much on government legislation well not only government legislation depends how strictly you adhere to salisbury yeah Um, some people do the mushroom platform legislation yeah um oh okay i see you were you're buttressing your uh, argument uh, in advance uh, here i'm pre-positioning yeah um and the reason we bring this up today of all days um is because this past week um there was a notable 
I'll, I'll say defeat with a little asterisk, even though yes. it's not really defeat. Um, but defeat in committee um, of C48, the uh, moratorium or tanker yeah. ban on the West Coast. And the dynamics of that were basically that the deciding vote came down. You, you know, you sort of had the conservatives in one camp, um, the ISG and liberals in other, with one exception, broadly, um, which was uh, newly appointed independent senator Paula Simons, an Alberta senator, a former journalist, um, well-known in Alberta, um, who cast the deciding vote. And gave the committee the no recommendation on the legislation. Yes. Um, and so she's now written about her position and her decision uh, fairly extensively for a senator, um, both on Twitter and in McLean's piece uh, titled something along the lines of "No, I didn't kill the Senate" or "No, yeah. I didn't uh, crush the Senate." I, I don't. I don't. I remember. am the Senate. I uh, no, I did not destroy the Senate. Um, so it's led to this tension and the the conversation being reiterated as to whether or not the ISG should be behaving in a manner so as to kill government legislation. Yeah. Where would you like to start with that? So I suppose, I mean, I think it's worth, okay. So the thing we sort of foreshadowed here was talking about, was this mandate legislation to begin with? Um, And as a Chan and I have sort of discussed back and forth uh, internally with each other over the week, it was not in the platform. So the, if you go to liberal.ca real change, uh, you will not see... Tanker, Four, 404 page not found. You will not see tanker ban on the West Coast. Uh, however, it was something they promised verbally, repeatedly, multiple times. You had B, BC candidates and Justin Trudeau going up and down BC, basically saying that if they were elected, there would be a tanker ban slash moratorium on the west coast tough cookies it's not on the platform so this raises an interesting metaphysical question of when is a promise a promise right is it does it only count if it's in the moratorium or in the the moratorium in the platform or does it count if it's a verbal promise made you know repeatedly reported on multiple times you can probably see where i'm coming from on this i think that this was you know and, and the government line on this is that it was a it was a commitment that they made during the election which I mean, I mean, it was unambiguously a commitment made during the election. You know it was what else? Not you know, a commitment in their platform. You know what else was a commitment during the election? Electoral reform to to run no deficits. No, they said they were going to run. No, deficits. they they reversed it in the early days of the the electoral. Well, I guess it wouldn't have been during the RIP period, but in late uh, mid July, their position was still that they weren't going that they, they were going to get to balance by the end of. Actually, no, it was going to be no deficits. Initially, all the parties were on no deficits. And then the liberals pivoted and threw that out the window. Smart. Um, But it's like the senators should have rejected the budget based on what Trudeau said while campaigning in July. Yeah, I mean, I think that's different because a well first of all not rip period at that point okay so now now we're adding the, the rip period. well i mean it has if we're talking be... about an election promise a commitment made during an election the rip period seems like a relevant factor i was saying well you're you're right but i think it was broadly understood that in advance of the fixed election date like uh, sheer is making election promises now sure um such so as get tough on china whatever that means. Uh, among among many others yeah um no but i mean i think uh like there's a difference between passing i think you should just pass a budget if you're the senate uh but when yeah it comes to sort I, I, was, of like, I was mostly being facetious yeah the, i, the I know you were but i sometimes have to just take your facetiousness like at literally, face value. literally yeah um 
and then move on from there. But no, I mean, yeah, no, I think it's, you know, you, you pass budgets, but then you sort of worry about the sort of platform commitments um, that were, or not platform commitments, but electoral commitments that were made, even uh, X platform. I think that that is still quite important and, and matters a fair amount. Uh, do you, are you, are you really, really hung up on this? Like if it didn't appear in the platform, it doesn't count thing. Or like, do you want to mount a serious defense of that principle? I mean, I, th- I think I do. Um, I mean, so the, the question, I mean, I don't think we can overstate that Salisbury has not been convention in Canada. Right. Um, well, yeah. And it's, like, it's I, sort of coming out of nowhere and it's because I it's reach, politically convenient for the government. I want to reach back a little bit and say the reason this has never really been an issue is because typically the government of the day is able to get partisan control of the Senate relatively quickly. Typically. There have been a couple exceptions to this. But usually, the GST, the GST. Yeah, usually it has not been a huge issue for governments to have to negotiate the Senate. And frankly, I think sort of having a vestigial um, patronage Senate that basically just exists to give people jobs, while obviously not a ideal state of affairs, was not a constitutionally complicated one. The Senate played an obvious second fiddle role where it, it did reports on things and gave people good salaries without really getting too, too involved in the nuts and bolts of legislation, for the most part. Yeah, there will be some people with longer memories who, who grieve that. No, I mean, like, I, I think obviously for the most part, I think as, that's true. There are obviously as the examples here and there. The center of quasi-constitutional crises over their exertion of power at several points in Yes. You know, the past 100 years of Canadian history. In the past 100 years, yes, but not too, too often in the last, like, generation. Sure. Yeah, not our, not often. The GST our one. generation. Yeah, sure. The the GST one, I think, is the last big one that I can think of. For, for millennials. Um, so, I mean, let's, let's back up. A, well, not back up, but let, let's change tax a little bit um, to Senator Simons' position, right? So, you're in her shoes. Okay. Um, you... I'm actually in some Birkenstocks right now. Oh, very nice. Freshly acquired. You don't wear those in Alberta. No, I would imagine you don't. Steel, steel toe boots. You yes. say steel, steel, steel toe boots. Steel toe Birkenstocks. <laughs> you got the ohm symbol, they're, they're electrical resistant. Um, so, is, like, if, if she were to be abiding by Salisbury, or yeah. if the ISG were to be abiding by Salisbury, which no one can get them to abide by any consistent principle indeed, um, or vote, is the idea that the senator from Alberta would vote against what she views as the interests of her constituents um, because of this UK convention that the government has been trying to push? For the past two years? Sure. So my take on this is, is first of all, uh, I, I think you have to go back a little further than, than the Salisbury Convention and just talk about democratic first principles and say, what is the democratic mandate of the Senate to do other than support government legislation with possibly minor amendments, right? And I think that that, I think they've, they've caught some stuff over the last parliament that has been helpful and that they've made salutary changes to some legislation and that's fine and good. Um, but, um, you know, ultimately they were not elected. The government was as much as we, we may not, you know, I think, I think no one who listens to this podcast regularly would accuse us of being too nice to the government, despite the fact that they were elected. Um, but no one voted for Paula Simons, 
right? And people did vote for Justin Trudeau and people did vote for his BC MPs that went up and down the coast making that promise. I think that does matter. Um, whether we want to get really cute about the the British principle of the thing is is to me kind of a secondary question. I don't really feel that strongly about the Salisbury. I mean, they have they've had a more decisive reckoning with their upper house than we have in many ways. They had the 1911 Lords crisis um, where they eventually decided that the Lords weren't going to have an absolute veto on legislation anymore. They were going to have at best a suspensive one. Um, and I think that that's actually a good model. But yeah, like we've never really had to reckon with the Senate before as a sort of uh, autonomous body that really flexes its own muscles. Uh, I think it's really interesting, actually, that during the Charlottetown and Quebec conferences, much of the time that the delegates spent was spent talking about how the Senate would function, and that it pretty much turned out within really not very long to be a, a more or less vestigial body that didn't really do a whole lot. Can, can I hit you with a sidewinder from, from the half-point line? Go ahead. Or the, the half-court line? Sure. You, you talk about Democratic First principles, right? Yes. The elected house versus the appointed house, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I could make an argument about Senate uh, or about the ISG and Paul Simons in particular being, you know, appointed by the elected house and therefore sure. having elected legitimacy, uh, some uh, democratic legitimacy in that way. I'm not going to go there. I think that's a weak argument. So um, good. I'm going to go to a fun fact I learned about the Salisbury uh, Convention. That in the UK, uh, the House of Lords at a point, I think it was in the when the Lib Dems were elected. They were just the Liberals at that point. Uh, s- decided to say something along the lines of, voter turnout wasn't high enough, therefore the convention is invalid because you don't have... Oh, that could have been Lib Dems. Um, uh, legitimacy or the, the democratic uh, legitimacy that's supposed to be. Um, so let me, let me do the... the electoral reform judo flip <laughs> and say that if the government um, is elected with you know 35 40 percent of the vote should the senate be beholden to them on the democratic first principles in that the government is not representative of uh, a majority of canadians i think that if we want to have a functional westminster system i think they do have to just go along with the government uh, that said, though, uh, if you want to get very cute about it, I do. I, par- I do parties, acu- parties that totaled over fifty percent of the Canadian national popular vote did support the legislation in question. So it's kind of I, kind I, of moot I mean, in this case. In, in this instance, yes. I, I will concede that point. But for the the broader yeah. conversation, no, I mean, I I just don't see how you get it to work any other way. If we're going to keep our electoral system, which you know is flawed, I mean, really, it comes down to we have a fundamental problem with our constitution, where we have an elected government and an unelected house of the legislature that nevertheless has basically co-equal powers, with obviously some exceptions. Budget bills can't originate there, etc. Uh, existing along with it, which is, it, it's tricky, and we've never really figured out a, com- a satisfying compromise to that. For most of Canadian history, it's just been that this is a vestigial patronage chamber that exists to rubber stamp government legislation. Justin Trudeau changed it to one that is a, you know, a true sober second thought, but with no accountability, which has its own problems. 
the Reform Party and the Conservative Party in the past have advocated for an equal elected let's, and let's, effective let's Senate. Put a little asterisk on true sober second thought there, though. Well, sure, but okay. So at least the the, the idea is that there is less fettered sober second thought that is independent to exercise its own authority. I agree that sure. it's flawed in practice, but that that's my point. Um, and yeah, there, there's this equal elected effective. There's been abolition as an idea. Um, thus far, equal elected effective has proven to be just not tenable. There's not the desire for it through the constitutional amendment process. Yes. Abolition requires unanimity, which is never going to happen. Um, Can we just thank the Supreme Court for the really botched job they made of the Supreme <laughs> Court reference? So the Supreme Court reference actually, and let, let's talk about this for a minute. And have we talked about this on the show before? I, I don't know. actually think so. Um, the Supreme Court reference. So Harper came in uh, with a promise to reform the Senate, uh, and he had, you know, sort of respected the the Senate elections in Alberta. The one time they happened, I guess. So, I mean, let, let me actually talk about that process because I think for anyone... We're who like three digressions deep. That's good. <laughs> That's a record. For anyone who didn't cast a ballot in Inception the level. Alberta in the... I think it was 2011. Alberta yeah, I election. believe that's correct. Um, 2012. I always mix those yeah. two dates up. I can never remember what year it was. Um, the one that elected uh, Alison Redford and the PCs. Um, it was actually reasonably unique and somewhat of an interesting experience. Uh, that year, when you went to vote in your provincial election, um, you were handed two ballots. Um, you were handed a ballot for the provincial, uh, your provincial MLA, and you're also handed a much longer ballot of senators or Senate candidates, of which you selected, I think, three. I don't remember if you were supposed to rank them. Or you were just supposed to put an X in three... I, th I think it was ranked, because I remember a lot of people started ranking their regular um, ballot, and it was it was the source of some confusion. Um, but anyway, all the parties ran slates of candidates. Um, so at that time, the Wild Rose had three candidates, uh, the PCs had three candidates, the Liberals. Um, there were a bunch of university professors, including at, uh, from the U of A, who ran um, to be... I guess, appointed senators. And Harper had basically just committed um, that he would abide by the results of the election. Mm -hmm. um, so of the three, Doug Black um, is the one that I can remember who was appointed. I want to say two were appointed and a third is sort of in the queue, but I could be wrong on that. I don't really remember um, who the second and third people were. Um, but re reasonably unique. Um, what happened afterwards was the constitutional reference on sort of the, the permissibility yeah, of doing so, this. So Stephen Harper sent a, a question to the Supreme Court, basically like, can I do this? Right? Like, what are my options with, with Senate reform? And they came back and, and really severely limited the options. They said basically that recognizing the results of elections was basically doing constitutional reform without actually going through the process and was thus illegal. Uh, that was essentially the logic. Does that? Uh, so my problem with this is—is is like, the problem my interpretation or the decision? No, with, with the decision. Okay, because <laughs> I was like, I think I explained that correctly, but like, not not to get into it, but the liberals are doing reasonably similar by having things. their independent appointment process. Yes. yes, both both in terms of senators, but also now Supreme Court justices. Yes, particularly the mechanism that they've set up for uh, the appointment of Supreme Court justices from Quebec as of last week um, that basically devolves the power to the provincial government, which is not the way this power was 
sort of envisioned. Yes. Um, so that I, does seem to be a very um, parallel case here. I, I would have to do a more contemporary reading of uh, the Supreme Court decision um, to see if there would be perhaps some overlap. I guess no one's challenged it yet. Yeah. I don't know where all those lawyers were that challenged everything Harper did. <laughs> uh, but I, w- I would love for Etienne, one of them to pick Etienne, up that come mantle. on. You, you know where they are. <laughs> <laughs> this is the same reason why no one said boo in the legal community for like a month and a half until into the SNC crisis. Um, yeah. It's, it's lib- libs are lawyers. All those, all those law professors that suddenly are, are too busy. Well, remember, uh, what's his name? Um, at U Ottawa. You know, you know who I'm talking about. Your best friend. C51 guy. Uh, you, Ottawa. Four C's. Oh, sorry, I was thinking Alberta. Forchese. Uh, yeah, Forchese. Forchese. <laughs> yes. Uh, who was Mr. C51, but then when uh, the SNC thing came out, was like, I trust the Prime Minister. I think he's a good man. I believe him. Uh, and then turned out to just yeah. be wrong where where one gives the benefit of the doubt is certainly uh... yes a a controversial thing um but at any rate with regard to the senate so that really generationally i think probably is going to put a halt to any kind of real senate reform in the sense that you you can't do you can't just recognize elections you can't abolish it really if there's you know unanimity requirement pei is just going to hold out until they get you know like the 90% of the federal budget spent in PEI or something. Uh, provincial hostage-taking. Canada's second great pastime. Yes. Um, so that's just... That's that's real tough. Uh, and also they ruled that uh, the prime minister can't just not appoint people. Like, it's not a thing... The, the, that's the not a thing they can do. The attrition solution. Yeah, yes. it's not a thing they can do legally. Um, so, yeah, that kind of leaves you short of options. So fair enough. I guess they have to do something. And the sort of... Um, in the context of the Senate scandal with with, uh, with Mike Duffy, Pam Wallen, Patrick Brazil, uh, you couldn't really just say I'm going to keep doing these like partisan patronage appointments. Yeah, I mean, so in the end of Harper's mandate, he stopped appointing senators yes. because it was seen as you know politically toxic, um, which you know it left a huge opening for it Trudeau, um, who has now filled the Senate to the brim um and i mean that's that's been his approach it wasn't a secret with no. the the independent senators and now yes the independent senators will be a way of life uh conservatives have said that they're not you know a huge fan of this model and that they would likely go back to appointing conservative senators yeah um but with just the plurality of isg there it's basically it, the for, retirements are going to trickle in right yeah, but for like, a generation yeah. plus it will be full to the brim of isg yeah and the isg i mean i frankly i really do hope that the isg splinters i i it's not a workable model at this point from what i hear from a negotiation perspective it's just chaos like the convener of the isg can't really hold his his group accountable for anything so negotiating with them is, is fruitless. Yeah. Um, like, it, it seems like they just need to split into ideologically or regionally aligned chunks. Uh, I think they changed the rule so that you need eight senators to be a recognized group. Like, it just seems like they should really split up into groups. That would make things kind of easier for everyone. Um, I mean, you think it would be easier to just negotiate with one person, but the reality is that when the person doesn't have any power to actually speak for his members, that's worse we are a senate ultimate frisbee caucus yeah pretty much um but no it's not really working all that well and it's leading to a lot of chaos and frankly i mean 
you have a sort of situation where before it was the the party bosses in charge you know people sort of being appointed for their their partisan credentials and and fundraising abilities and all that stuff uh which was it wasn't wasn't great but now i mean and people have remarked on this repeatedly and this is something sort of has been snarkily remarked upon in the context of paul simons is that there's a um the lobbying of the senate has increased dramatically like you know like many multiples of what it was before um and is it really better that we're now having these independent lawmakers that are being you know lobbied incredibly heavily with no real democratic accountability and they have their jobs for their 75 like those are connections that if you're a lobbyist you want to just make early and then you have a lot of sort of mental real estate from that person for the duration of their career i have some obvious disagreements of course you do um as someone who works in that industry um a a reasonable disagreement i mean i think our disagreement here is just in terms of what space lobbying fills in terms of advocacy and access to government um and how how lobbyists are persuasive um that unlike sort of the the u.s model where no no yeah lobbying often involves you know trips trips to vacation homes and things like that here it's sponsored travel (laughs) (laughs) not really like the sponsored travel is often more through uh associations and well embassies and, largely yeah. embassies countries yeah. or well um, okay so i mean yes it's embassies in some <clears throat> cases and sort of like broad i mean i don't really know what to call cja but cja does a ton of trips yeah but as that's uh, i don't actually don't really remember what the as that the uh, it's one of the israeli ones as the uh lobbying commissioner said uh, i mean she did a review of sponsored travel and lobbying just very recently a few yep. weeks ago and you know didn't, didn't find any substantive uh issues with the practice following uh the book as, as written well she found but, that there were no instances of people being lobbied on trips if you don't count the trip itself as a lobbying effort i suppose that's which fine which wasn't counted because it's provided for in the conflict of interest act and code. the code of conduct yeah the code i think it was both um, or the, the, co- the lobbyist code of conduct, the, but the conflict sure. code, yes. So in, in both. Anyways, not to, not to go down the, the sponsored travel rabbit hole because we can certainly talk about this another time. Um, and I think we have before. Yeah, our intern is speaking up about it. <laughs> Sorry if you guys have heard him. He's, he's he'll get fed afterwards. Don't worry. Don't, don't tread on me. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but all that to say, I mean, my view broadly on lobbying um, is that it is like what is persuasive about lobbying is the arguments that yes. you're making and so being open and receptive to hearing arguments from many people i think senators should frankly take more meetings and not limit themselves and not say lobbies are a bad thing i think they should be very broad and wide open and, and take a lot of meetings and that as for large part is how most mps and ministers and departments and yeah the rest sure of it, i i mean i think uh, there's position themselves some, some of the more lobby departments are specifically of that frame of mind yeah i'm thinking i said in finance they'll take everything yeah. who will take a meeting with absolutely anyone for the fear of uh being biased yeah. so there are people there that just take meetings on the other hand i mean you look at c48 you look you know the defeat of, of popular fairly popular promise by the government uh, and you look at the Senate little, lobbying little, record. Little asterisks on that defeat, though. We'll, we'll, we'll get to okay. The, yes. we'll get to the asterisks. That's tedious, but yes. Um, yeah, you, you look at the Senate lobbying records, and it's 123 meetings for about 15 odd senators over the last six months, which is like I think that's a pretty heavy campaign 
of of lobbying yes and yeah i mean it's just it looks really bad and i think when you're talking about an unelected chamber only only if you have this terribly negative disposition i frankly i do have a terrible disposition towards we're, oil we're, oil industry lobbyists i mean it's it's people with stake in the game i mean in any industry be it the environmental industry or the, the environmental industry that produces no, no, no. <laughs> all those people getting real rich no, I mean, off saying we should environmentalists or like environmentalists are passing laws and lobbying yes the, the, same. the, the foreign funded environmentalists of course <laughs> I'm, I'm, all i'm saying is like broadly it is access to government and having communication with be it industry or stakeholders of any sort uh non-profit yes, but industry it, let's Access is not equal between different elements of it the sort of... can be. It can be. It if, ooh, if if big poverty just got its act together and got the right lobbyists, they too could have access to, to parliamentarians and senators. I, see, but that's... Okay, so let, let me just quash that one misconception. Um, because lobbying isn't really access-driven. Like, no, 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 it's, but it's... It's just, it's just not... It's organization-driven. Why, why do you guys charge for things... It's more <laughs> complex than that. Okay. It, it's a lot more complex than that. But let, let me just take issue with the framing of access driven because this is uh, largely one of no, the I, I don't. I don't mean access driven. I don't mean access driven in the sense of who you know, right? That's not what I mean. I mean access driven in the sense that your arguments hold water if you can get the meeting. And that's not to say that the meeting is, is driven by who the person at the lobbying firm knows. And I, I know that that's not how lobbying works in Canada. But it is who is organized enough and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to get that door open. And to be fair also, to, I, to I send, think send I, email. I think the thing, yes, but I think it helps. And I've seen this. It helps when the email is from someone the person receiving it is familiar with. It is. It just is. Like, I've seen that happen many times. I, I would agree with that in part. But particularly if it's an organization that individual is familiar with. Yes, that is true. But I think the individual also matters, especially if it's like something you're kind of on the fence about. And it's like, oh, okay, but I know this person. They're okay. And then you take it. Like, I've seen that. It's not something I feel great about, frankly. But it does happen. Uh, but all that to say that there's definitely one side with where the money is on this that can afford the good firms that get the that have the people that know people that get their foot in the door the tides foundation yeah the the foreign funded tides foundation foreign fighters foreign funding put them all in the same jail okay wait yeah let's let's circle back to where we were okay Um, what, what was the point you were initially making uh that basically i think it's it's very suspect for unelected senators to be taking all these meetings and then kill legislation that was a election promise from an elected government so in defense of paula simons okay um and i mean i I would advise everyone to read her piece because it is a very interesting take and we've remarked on paula simons before and how her journalism uh disposition has brought an interesting amount of uh transparency to uh the senate that you know previously hasn't been there um be it procedurally or otherwise um she i mean you can take her at her word or or you can't but or or you won't rather um but based on the piece she basically says you know i i made this decision on its merits 
I wanted to amend the legislation. I couldn't in good conscience pass it as it was. Um, and so the government wasn't willing to play ball with the amendments I, I was looking to put through. So at the end of the day, I had to vote against it. Yes. Um, and do you want to talk about that asterisk now? Yes, that's exactly where I was going to go. Um, so the asterisk is there, there was some policy conversation among sort of the, the policy wonks of, or the, the Senate proceduralists of Twitter. Um, because I'll, I'll be honest, Senate procedure is not my, my wheelhouse. Because it has not been relevant for anyone for a long um, time, though it is newly relevant again. Yes, and this is in fact a reasonably unique situation. So as you can see, the lobbyists are learning. <laughs> They're like the velociraptors in Jurassic Park. They're learning <laughs> to open doors. <laughs> um, where I think what the consensus seems to be is that the report will go back to the Senate um chamber and the senate chamber will basically have the opportunity as to whether or not they want to override the report from that committee um there was some debate as to whether or not the committee because they voted no whether or not they would report back that no vote or it would sort of just die but it does seem like it will be reported back to the senate um and then that is where the government via its isg majority and the kool-aid of the salisbury doctrine um, is likely to resuscitate the bill. Yes. Um, so, I mean, I don't really see why this is Kool-Aid to be like the unelected body has to... Well, it's not necessarily that, but like the, the government has been pushing a very hard Salisbury line for the past few years, and like... Understand. It's, it's very I mean, clear that they're proselytizing the ISG in the in the ways of the Salisbury. It's of a Lord bit of a Salisbury. Well, I mean, it's a bit of a creature of their own making in the sense that they have opened the door to an independent Senate... That does what it likes, uh, as as Senator Simon said in her piece. Um, but I mean, at the same time, I think they're trying to close the door on as much of it as they can, <laughs> which I also think is kind of fair, honestly. I like, give with one hand and I take. With no, the other. I mean, I actually, I, if there's a thing I'm sympathetic to them on, it's this: it's that they they've created a monster where they've said, "Okay, you're independent," but then they've decided, "Ooh, shoot!" Like, but not that independent. And I think that actually is a tough balance to strike. As we said before, the the, the hands for, for any party are, are limited on Senate reform. And I think they they had to be seen to do something. So it, it, this is actually an issue where I'm a little sympathetic to the, the sort of jam they've gotten themselves in. Uh, on the other hand, you know, I don't know that they've managed it ideally, but I think they committed themselves to not managing it early on, which was its own choice. Uh, and fair enough, but yeah, it's it's they've certainly gotten themselves into a bit of a jam with with sort of five week, three four four weeks left four weeks of parliamentary left. sitting time. Um, so it's tough. Okay, let's let's bridge off of uh, C forty eight, which is now taken up half about, an hour, thirty five minutes, a little thirty five minutes. Well, we're talking about the Senate generally. There's a lot yeah. there. A, a little bit more, and let's just do a, a high level overview of what to expect in the next five months. Um, because a lot of a lot of people are turning their minds to this. So the election is in pretty much exactly five months. E- is it like twenty first or something? It, yeah, is it the yeah. It's today? pretty much exactly five months. Twenty second um, today, but yes, yeah. fixed by um, the Elections Canada Act or the Parliament of Canada Act. I think it's the Parliament of Canada Act. I think that's correct. Um, but I mean, most of the stuff. It, I'm to ta- be honest, doesn't really matter. Most of the stuff I'm talking about will either come from the elections. The Canada Elections Act, I think, is actually the yes. worst phrase. Um, the, unfair, the, the Unfair Elections Act. No, that's that's the bill. <laughs> um, I know, I just like saying it. That's fair. It, it was quick. The, the French, it, the it French version well. is even better, though. Unfair, or uh, Deforme Electoral. 
electoral deform. Yes, that was really good. Or, or is that what liberals did? Um, Got him. So the House of Commons is set to rise the twenty first of June or something like that. The, that the, week, the second yeah. last week. Um, the Senate um, is, you know, by default scheduled for a week later. Um, it all always depends on the will of the houses um, and how, more importantly, perhaps how uh, legislation is uh, winding up because you can't have the House rise substantially before the Senate if there's still ping pong to happen between the houses. Yeah, um, We nearly had an instance a few years ago um, where the Senate was going to send back a bill to a house that had risen and it caused quite a panic am- among uh, proceduralists in Ottawa. Of having to recall the House of Commons like a day and a half after it had risen. Um, oh, yeah, I remember that. But um, hopefully it won't come to that. I mean, the biggest asterisks, I think, there's a lot of legislation hung up in the Senate, uh, largely in committee stage that still needs to be pushed through. Um, there's a few things that are trickling out of the House of Commons. Uh, C91 and C92, the indigenous languages. Mm-hmm. Uh, C262 in the Senate is still uh, something we're waiting on. Which is... Uh, Romy Saganesh's uh, undrip not, bill. Not going to pass. No, I, I suspect it won't, but it's... Uh, I mean, if... I think it's about to be referred to committee. Um, if it's referred to something like APA, I think it's APA and Senate, which is the Senate. Everzone Peoples, yeah. Um, C91 and 92 will likely bump it um, because government legislation gets priority over private members' business. Um, the clock is ticking. I, I, don't think it has, I don't think it has a chance. Uh, just just proceed no i i yeah i, mean, I just wanted to raise it because it's something that the liberals sort of hugged earlier in their their in the parliament i think probably with the sort of cynical understanding that it would probably die on the senate order paper uh, uh rona ambrose's bill is another one in, rona uh, yeah so I'm, I'm terrible with that you really are um, i mean you're, you're terrible with most names to be fair in a in a virtually identical situation um, the judge's uh education on sexual assault yes yeah um, so there's those, um, the budget implementation act, of course, is the must, must pass, um, bill of the final session. Um, but in the past sitting. week, yes, sitting, uh, well, session. Well, it'll be the end of session, I suppose. Yes. yes. The one session. Yes. So technically correct is the best type of correct. Indeed. Um, but the, the one bill, the I hermetic think principle, a lot of Ottawa has turned their eyes to in the past few days has been NAFTA. Um, I mean, there's obviously been a breakthrough on NAFTA, the lifting of the steel and aluminum tariffs with the United States, and now the promise to push towards uh, ratification um, just procedurally, there's two different parts here. There's the ratification of NAFTA and the passing of the implementation legislation. Uh, of the two, ratification is actually easier. Um, the, as I understand it, the legis- or the treaty has already been introduced to the House of Commons and has to be sitting in the House of Commons for 21 days before the executive can formally ratify it. Um, there can be debates, etc. Um, but it's, it's broadly, it just needs to be with the House of Commons. Uh, for 21 days and that that has already occurred um so the latest reporting by the globe has said that basically on monday well i mean we'll see if it's put on notice uh tomorrow i suppose no it'd be friday they put it on notice uh nafta uh, implementation legislation and that's the legislation that amends all the various acts to basically make nafta take effect and so there would be 
a real crunch to push through the actual uh, enabling legislation prior to the end of sitting and perhaps extending sitting by a week or two um, to get that legislation through. Um, but because we're in this sort of uh, weird gap um, where we're not going to have a parliament for four-ish months, maybe more than that, or a functional government for four-ish months, um, there's an awkward tension between passing and ratifying our legislation while there's still a bunch of asterisks on it in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, whether or not the United States amends legislation, I mean, they obviously don't have uh, unanimity on it because the Dems now control the House of Representatives. So there's sort of an awkward tension there. The Hill Times had a good piece uh, that sort of talked through some of this procedurally um, this morning. They did indeed. Um, so th- that's that's sort of quickly high level what the next... 30 plus odd days look like um and then june 30th sort of serves serves the next trigger point uh june 30th uh triggers the pre-election period right um which is as of uh bill c76 uh the liberals legislation that they passed in late december um and that introduces spending caps on parties and third parties Mm -hmm. on political parties and third parties um there's all sorts of limits and reporting requirements that come into effect um and that you know lessons learned or the liberal takeaways from the 2015 election um and that runs until the writ period uh the writ period now has a legislative uh cap of 50 days of between 36 and 50 days um which puts you somewhere in between september 15th and september 1st um so that's when the actual writ will be dropped uh drawn up I'm not going to engage with that. I'm not going to remark on that. Okay. Um, And at which point the caps will change from the pre-election period caps, um, which are reasonably low for political parties for the time span we're talking about. I think political parties have a spending cap of $2 million um, over those months, a period of about two months, uh, versus a in the tens of millions of dollars for the writ period. Right. Um, so that's when things really ramp up again. So I think you're seeing a lot of political party spending, particularly by the conservatives right now, in advance of the pre-writ period, at which point small caps are imposed and then larger caps for the writ period, concluding in election day. Yeah. So that's sort of the high level. The only thing I would mention that is the caretaker convention, um, is always of, fun is of course on everyone's minds as well of course everyone is thinking about that uh, <laughs> um, and so the caretaker convention is sort of the stasis that the civil service goes into uh until emerging into a beautiful butterfly <laughs> formally during the writ period um but a lot of powers start to get uh transferred to the civil service in expect uh, over the summer in anticipation of the caretaker convention coming into effect and broadly, that's so that governments do not uh, exert power or make influential decisions while the election is on. Yeah. And yeah, because it's cr- critical to say parliament gets dissolved uh, once the writ starts, uh, but the cabinet does not. Like the actual government continues to hold government offices, um, but there is no parliament. Until such point as a new cabinet is sworn in. Yes um so for instance when was the last federal election last federal election was october 18th um yeah around then and then the swearing in was fourth or fifth of november november 4th yeah 
Um, so the conservative ministers were ministers until November 4th, um, even though on November 1st, their offices were empty and the painters were in. Yeah. Um, painting a nice hue of liberal red on all the walls. Of course, yeah. Um, so, all I mean... It's, it's an interesting time over the summer. Let me relay just one quick story about my experience with the caretaker convention. Um, I was, I mean, we were in office as we were transitioning and we had a, a planning meeting on Mondays, on Monday mornings. Um, and we'd always gone to it. And it's like, it was a very, very mundane meeting with the, with the communications team um, in our department where we talk about significant events coming up, uh, whether, you know, an ADM was giving a speech at some conference any big tweets that were planned, any, Ooh, big tweets. any, yeah, any just, you know, things that like, oh, we're going to do this bike riding helmet safety campaign. We're going to have this Twitter Q and a, we're going to do this sort of thing. So very mundane procedural meeting. Um, after the writ dropped, uh, Just drawn up. Shut up. <laughs> um, we, you know, in the, the week immediately preceding, we went to that same meeting um, didn't say anything, sat through the meeting and left. And when we left, uh, we were advised via our departmental assistant that we were disinvited to those meetings um, and that we, you know, it was no longer appropriate for us to be there. Like the most mundane of things, the minister's mm. office is completely yanked out of. Yeah. Um, so. I bet the civil service just wishes it could do that all the time. They do. They do deep in their bones. <laughs> And meanwhile, the civil service is doing all their transition stuff. Um, so they do a substantial amount of preparation for um, all contingencies. I feel bad for all the people who had to do the, the NDP prep last time. <laughs> it's just like, oh, oh, ooh, ooh. Whoops. Yeah. yeah. Never, never went anywhere. Uh, well, except for the times when we do. Not this time. Not this time. Not no. last time. Not this time. Yeah. Well, this time, yeah, Alberta, I was thinking. Or PEI or Newfoundland, I guess. Though, you know, in Newfoundland, they actually made out pretty good. Two seats? Three. Three seats. Uh, but for running a 14-candidate slate, uh, that's pretty good. That's not bad. You miss, out, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. That's true. Um, you're not wrong about that. Nor is Wayne Gretzky. Nor is Michael <laughs> Scott. I've never watched The Office, and frankly, I find it annoying. So. Here, here. Yeah, that, people are going to get mad at us for that. Um. I think I'll probably do it for us, eh? Unless you wanted to really talk about these commissioner things. G G Game of Thrones is uh, the n the next thing on the the agenda. Yeah. Was, what did you guys think? It was a bad season, folks. Hugo, any thoughts? Hugo doesn't watch it actually. Hugo was very upset with the finale. He was. Um, he, you know, he was, he was probably disappointed. He thought a lot of storylines went absolutely nowhere. Yeah. Um, and were complete dead ends. Hugo wanted more cats. You know, I, I I relate to Hugo. You wanted uh, you wanted the wolf to get the pats. That's true, and he, he did it at the end. He did. He did it at the end. Fan service. Yeah, that really was. They were like, "Oh shit! Oh shit!" I mean, it was obviously filmed a long time ago, but they're like, "Oh, we got so ripped on for." Uh... <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, that'll do it for us today. Thank you once again for listening. Uh, you can follow us at Short Pants Pod on Twitter. You can review us on iTunes or wherever fine podcasts are sold. That is exclusively also where you can download us. Uh, though you've probably figured that out if you're listening to this right now, I suppose. Kind of a moot point, really, at the end of the day. You know, the people still need to hear it. They do. Uh, recommend us to your friends if you think they'd be interested in fun podcasts about Canadian politics. Uh, I suspect with an election coming up, this is more on people's minds than perhaps it's been in the last couple of years. So, you know, who knows? 
could, could be fun for them. And if they don't know what the Salisbury Doctrine is, they could. They could, and then they would be much better informed, and you would be uh, contributing to civic life. There you go. You, even around Ottawa, if you mention the Salisbury Doctrine, most people will glare at you. And yeah, assume prob- you're talking about Salisbury steak. Pro- yeah, pro- probably have no idea what you're talking yeah. about. So you could be the smartest guy in the room, which is pretty cool. All right, well, that'll do it for us. Thank you once again, though I already said this. Uh, <laughs> bye-bye!